The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. like to highlight a few uh, announcements uh, for you. First of all, in this uh, month of July, uh, we're, we're very grateful uh, for, the, for the whole month, for the next four Sundays, to have uh, Dr. John Curry. He's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he'll be filling the pulpit for us. And uh, our session was very gracious as they looked at our schedule and saw that uh, Tucker York was on a missions trip, and I'll be on a, a trip this next week, and we had vacations scheduled to, uh, to schedule uh, some, some other preachers. And this is a real privilege for me. Uh, Dr. Curry was uh, my pastor when I was going through seminary, and was a, had a big influence on my life, and it's just a, a real privilege to have him here and minister God's Word to us uh, over the next four Sundays. Well, a very good morning to you, and it is a, a joy a privilege uh, to be with you uh, here on this Sunday and at the kind invitation of your pastors in session uh, for the next uh, three Sundays after this. Uh, It's a privilege to be here because I uh, am allowed uh, by the grace of God to preach the Word of God. And that is uh, the highest of privileges, I think, uh, that one can be given. But it's also uh, a great joy and privilege because of uh, this church and the esteem in which uh, we hold it. Uh, I teach at Westminster Theological Seminary, and your church has been a good friend to Westminster, not least by allowing uh, your senior pastor of many years, Dr. Rogers, to serve very faithfully as one of our trustees. And uh, you have our graduates serving on your staff. Uh, again, not least, Chris. Chris mentioned that uh, I had the privilege of being he and Kate's pastor uh, before they had all the little walkers uh, while they were uh, in seminary. And that was our, really was our privilege, along with some other seminarians, it was Chris and Kate in that season of our church's life that really made ministry happen. And then I had the privilege just recently of uh, sitting in on uh, Dr. Walker's doctoral defense and uh, he won't tell you this, but I want, to, I want you to know he did a very fine job. And uh, all the time that you allowed him to invest in that, uh, you can be very proud of, of what Dr. Walker did. Well, my joy this week, this next few weeks is to be with you in the Gospel of Luke. So could I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find our text on page 862. Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. The text that we're going to focus on is found in verses 17 to 19, but when you're looking at a text, context is always important. So we're going to start in verse 12, and I'll read through to verse 19, and then I'll ask you to join me in asking the Lord's help on our sermon. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, please listen because this is the Word of God. In these days he, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, and his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we've just sung a hymn where we plead with you to refresh our nation and that the true religion would dwell in our hearts. Lord, that begins in the church. And any refreshment and revival of true religion that will take place is going to begin from the pulpit down as the Word of God is preached in the power of the Spirit and as people's lives are supernaturally, miraculously, mercifully transformed by Jesus. And so now, Lord, as we sit under Your Word, we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit, His illumining power. We pray, Lord, that You would uh, not just inform our heads, but we pray that You would reach our hearts. Lord, would You help us above all things to see Jesus Christ in His person and in His work? Would You help us to see our place in His plan? And then we pray, Lord, that if there would be even one person today within the sound of this sermon who has not seen Christ and embraced Him as Savior, would You make the vision of Jesus from this Your Word so compelling that they would be drawn to faith today? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The chief end for which the church ought to exist, the chief end for which the individual church members ought to live is the evangelization and conversion of the world. Those were the words of a missionary to India, Alexander Duff, when he returned from his mission field in India to find the church of Scotland had lost its love for the cause of world missions. And so Duff set about to preach a sermon which was called Missions, the Chief End of the Christian Church. He based it on Psalm 67. You might remember some of that psalm. God be, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. One historian of preaching in the Christian church has called that sermon by Duff one of the most significant sermons in the history of the church as it revitalized and mobilized the church of Scotland for a whole new generation of missionaries. The church, 
can so easily drop its evangelistic and missionary character. And we need to be reminded again and again that benefiting from God's grace should result in a passion and a penchant to extend God's grace. Here's a little more of what Duff said. And what is the whole history of the Christian church but one perpetual proof and illustration of the grand position that an evangelistic or missionary church is a spiritually flourishing church and that a church which drops its evangelistic or missionary character speedily lapses into being obsolete and decay. It wasn't just Alexander Duff. Around that same period, there were five professors from what we call Old Princeton Seminary, that nursery for missionaries and pastors in the 19th century in Princeton, New Jersey. Professors like Alexander, Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller, and none other than Charles Hodge. And in the 1830s, they wrote a report for the General Assembly that said this, the spirit of the religion of Jesus is essentially a spirit of mission." And undoubtedly, one of the first and highest duties of the Christian church is to nurture and extend this spirit and to make all her establishments a tributary to its advancement. The passage before us this morning tells us that's true. It shows us that's the spirit of Jesus. In these next few weeks together, we are plunging into the middle of Luke's history of Jesus to see portraits of His grace that will help us to grasp His grace more certainly for ourselves, but Lord willing, also to compel us to extend His grace to our neighbors and to the nations. Now, if we had studied the Gospel of Luke together from the beginning, we'd know that from the first verse, he tells us that his purpose in writing his Gospel is to give us a careful account of all that Jesus accomplished in God's plan. And so as we encounter different portraits, different episodes in the Gospel of Luke, this question should never be far from our minds. Why is it here? Why has the Holy Spirit inspired this particular episode? To, what has He inspired it to tell us about Jesus, about His ministry, and about His mission? And the answer that will come to us in one way or another is that this careful episode and account is contributing in one way or another to make us more certain about what Jesus has accomplished in the plan of God. This morning, we are going to set the stage for that by looking at carefully at how Luke was inspired to record this mission-defining moment in Jesus' work. And I want to give you the main idea in this passage so that you can write it down, take it away with you. If you check out at this point, this is what you need to remember. Christ cares for sinners. And so we should turn from our sin and touch Him by faith. And we should bring others to do the same. Christ cares for sinners. And so we can and should turn from our sin, touch Him by faith, and bring others to do the same. 
Now this morning from these few verses, what I'd like to do is point out to you two significant revelations about Jesus. And then we're going to ask, what do we do with this Jesus who's revealed here? Here's the first thing we're going to notice. First, we're going to notice Jesus' heart for the crowd. Jesus' heart for the crowd. And then we're going to notice Jesus' heart for the broken and for the bound. And then we're going to ask the eternity-altering question, how do we respond to this Jesus? How do we respond to this Jesus? Well, first, if your Bible is still open, would you look with verse 17 with me as we notice Jesus' heart for the crowd? And He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. In the opening verse of His Gospel, Luke has assured us that this is a careful account. So he doesn't he doesn't uh, waste ink. He doesn't waste words. You know what this is like as a parent. My wife Rhonda and I raised two sons. And one of the mantras in my home was, you mess with your mom, you mess with me. And I would repeat it to my sons. You mess with your mom, you mess with me. And on the rare occasion when discipline was necessary for messing with mom, I would say, finish this sentence for me. You mess with your mom, we mess with you. (laughs) You might as a parent look at your children and say, read my lips, because you want it to stick. Well, the way that Luke is using language in these verses is he's repeating phrases and giving us careful cues to what he wants to stick by the words that he uses. Notice what Jesus does, uh, what Luke does is he describes the people around Jesus. Jesus is with three groups of people, and they are described as those who are closest to him, and and then those who are most at a distance. Verse 17, first we start with them. That's the apostles. That's the closest and the smallest group. Then he mentions the great crowd of disciples. That's a larger group. And then there's a great multitude. That's kind of the hangers-on who are out on the fringes still kind of checking Jesus out. And then there's a particular thing about the way Luke wants to stress this, the larger groups, the, 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 the crowd of disciples. Notice what he says about both of them. They're both great groups. That means they're really big. The crowd of disciples is a great crowd. The multitude is a great multitude. Now here's another careful cue. Luke hardly ever uses those two phrases together. The two terms, crowd of disciples, multitude of people, they're hardly ever used together. He's telling us, read my lips. I want you to see that this was a great, big multitude. One more detail, and then I'll try to show us why that matters. Notice where the people are from. Jesus is doing ministry in Galilee. That's up north. The great crowds come from all over. All Judea, that's the south. Jerusalem, that's the religious center. And the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, predominantly populated by Gentiles, non-Jews. Here's 
the point that Luke, by carefully narrating those details, is pressing upon us. This is what our senses are supposed to appreciate. There were lots and lots and lots of people from all over. From the center of committed religion, Jerusalem, to the outsiders, the skeptics, those who are the scandalous, the Gentiles. It matters in Luke's account to the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. That, there, that these people came from different places and different backgrounds. It matters to Luke's account of what Jesus came to accomplish that there were multitudes. Here's one of the reasons that matters to us. Because if we have been blessed by the grace of God it can become very easy to forget the so that. It's very easy for our hearts to become narrowed to our comfort zone. It's very easy for our our passion, our vision for the crowd to become watered down because of the bless in, in, in the midst of the blessings that we've received. It's very easy for us as Christians who've been blessed perhaps for many years to have been delivered from our sin and all that God's grace has worked in our lives and has lifted our lives. It can be very easy for us to become content with the kind of sentiment that says, us for no more, shut the door. And if that's our heart reflex, what we need to see this morning is that our heart's are not lined up with this Christ. See, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit who inspired and preserved every word of the Scriptures had Luke carefully record that there were large numbers of people being drawn to Jesus. And it's not just here that he does it. Think about Luke's other book, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the Pentecost sermon and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, but many of those who heard believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Acts chapter 6, and the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Why do the numbers matter to Luke? Because he's a church growth pragmatist. No. Because his purpose is to assure us of everything Jesus came to accomplish. And in the Old Testament, God promised His plan to Abraham this way, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. He promised His plan to the prophet Isaiah this way, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and, watch this, all nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, we may walk in His paths. And then we have that glorious vision from the Apostle John at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb clothed in white robes. Listen, God's promised plan is that multitudes from all sorts of places and all sorts of people would be drawn to Christ in His kingdom and its blessings. So the fact that there was a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude from all over hearing the teaching of Jesus, experiencing the healing that Jesus could give, shows us that Christ was accomplishing God's lavishly gracious plan. The numbers matter to God. The numbers of people who turn from worshiping false idols to worshiping the one true and living God. The numbers matter to God. The numbers of people who receive His mercy and don't go to hell. They matter for His glory in the display of His mercy in the victory of His Son, Jesus. There's another of those old Princeton professors and pastor that I like to read. His name was Samuel Miller. And this old Presbyterian pastor wrote this. Our plans and efforts for promoting this object ought to be large, liberal, and ever-expanding. When we direct our attention to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to see the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. We are too apt, said Miller, to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service to this the greatest of all causes, instead of devoting to it hearts truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, expecting great things, praying for great things. Brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus, we need to see Jesus' heart for the crowd. For the multitudes amongst our neighbors and nations who as yet have not received the blessings of Christ the way we have. And just as we see that, we need to see Jesus' heart for the broken and for the bound. Would you look back at your text with me and we'll look at verses 18 and 19. As it describes that crowd, verse 18 19, who came to hear Him, hear Him teaching, be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him. And He healed them all. One of the great old Puritans, Samuel Rutherford, wrote this, I think I see more of Christ than I ever saw. And yet I see little of what may be seen. That's true of our whole Christian life. If we sit under the preaching of the Scriptures as you have for generations, if we open up the Scriptures, that we see more of Christ than we've ever seen, and yet we see so little of what may be seen. We need to see Christ in all that He is. And here today, He shows us His heart of compassion for the broken and the bound. See, if we'd been moving through Luke's Gospel together, we would have heard Jesus announce His mission 
in his home synagogue in Nazareth. He stood up and he took the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the Christ. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Essentially, he said, I am anointed by the Spirit sent by the Father so that I might preach preach good news to the bound, the blind, and the broken. And that's what we find Jesus doing all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And here again, they're coming to hear Him proclaim His Word. And they're coming to receive that extraordinary ministry where He heals those who have diseases and those who are dominated by the devil. Luke gives us picture after picture of this in Jesus' ministry. We're going to notice a couple more in the weeks to come. He shows us Jesus' healing as a sign, as a wonder to cause people to see His authority over sin and its cursed effects. Jesus' healings in the Scriptures don't give us a formula for guaranteed healing in this life. They were wonderful, but they were temporary tokens to point us to the real solution, the permanent, eternal restoration that He will give to us in the resurrection. Christ healed lepers. He healed lame people to powerfully signal that He was the one God had sent to overturn sin's curse and its consequences. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes off into the wilderness and He faces down the devil in temptation and defeats him to show us that He's the one who through His cross and resurrection will have victory over the devil. Chapter 5, He heals a leper who makes his way through the city and all of the shame and scorn that that would cause for a leper just to find Jesus. And Jesus touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. And the chapter 5, Jesus turns to a disgraced, dishonored tax collector named Levi and he says, come be one of my disciples. Follow me. Jesus has been liberating the broken and the blind and the bound all the way through. But here's the difference in our text. Now he's doing it en masse. It's all of them from all over. We are meant in this text to see the massive, powerful, pervasive compassion of the heart of Christ for the bound and the blind in their sin and those who are under Satan's bondage. Just across the page, if we took the time, we would read of Jesus coming to a funeral at the city of Nain as a widow now carries her only son out on the funeral board. And that would have put her now in the category of being the poor, the destitute, the oppressed in society. And Jesus does what the good religious people would never have done. Jesus goes over and touches that funeral board and He raises that boy because the text tells us in chapter 7, verse 13, He was moved with compassion for her. The word that's translated compassion refers to his gut. It means he was, his guts were moved. Matthew chapter 9 tells us Jesus looked at the crowds who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and it says the same word. He was moved with compassion. The Gospel of John tells us that when he stood before the tomb of Lazarus, John 11.35, Jesus wept. The great Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield said this, Jesus melted with pity at the sight of human misery. 
Friends, this episode shows us Jesus' massive heart toward sinners. Moved by mercy to restore what sin had corrupted. To release what the devil had enslaved. Here's my appeal to you this morning. Please don't miss the Jesus revealed in this episode. He is the Christ who cares for people in their guilty, sin-cursed brokenness and bondage. And who liberates them through His death and resurrection. So we see Jesus' heart for the crowd. We see Jesus' heart for the broken and bound. So what do you do with this Jesus? Here's the eternity-altering difference. This isn't just a story. This is history. This isn't just here to be sentimental. This is here to cause us to respond to this Jesus. What do you do with Jesus like this? Let me give you two applications. First, as individuals. Secondly, as the church. As individuals, why would we not do by faith what these people did by sight? Turn and trust Jesus by touching Him. Again, I haven't taken the time today to convince you that Jesus healing bodies was ultimately meant to display His authority to deal with our root problem. Our root problem is sin. Our rebellion against God makes us guilty before God. And that curse of sin is what causes all of the corruption, all of the sickness, all of the death in this world. Jesus' token healings, those marvelous displays of power, demonstrated His authority to take care of the curse of sin. And that's why, out of His immense compassion, He went to the cross to be a substitute sacrifice for sinners so that by His stripes we could be healed. That's why He was raised from the dead with God's power so that He could give new life to everybody who would touch Him by faith. But here's our problem. We don't want to admit that we're not well. Jesus had to tell the self-righteously religious and the self-sufficient rich that He didn't come to call the righteous, and it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. Our problem is that we don't want to admit that we have a fatal disease called sin, and that the only way out of the disease is to trust the only Savior. And so we present and we posture ourselves. We mask our brokenness. We try to cover our guilt through our own self-righteousness, through our own self-sufficiency. And friends, if you follow the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that the people who get what Jesus came to do are those who know themselves to be sinners and the people who don't get it are the people who think they're self-righteous and self-sufficient. And if we are to benefit from the Jesus who is revealed to us in this text, we must realize that we are guilty, broken, bound, dying sinners who need the living Savior. And then, 
As those who have benefited from Christ's lavish grace ourselves, we need to give our lives. We need to give our lives to bring the multitudes who are still at a distance to touch Him and receive His grace by faith. Do you notice who were the first most intimate group that was with Jesus? Them, the apostles. Why are the apostles there? This is the beginning of their internship. They're there to be witnesses to the mission of mercy that Jesus has come to accomplish. They're at the epicenter of the movement. They will spend the next years following Jesus, watching His work, seeing Him crucified, seeing Him raised from the dead, so that they can be witnesses to Christ, so that at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will turn to His apostles and say, you are My witnesses. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in My name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Loved ones, if we claim to be an apostolic church built on the foundation of the apostles, if we came to claim to be an apostolic pattern church, we need to realize that commission doesn't end till the end of the age when Jesus comes back. And if we have received the blessing of God, if God has been merciful to us and blessed us and caused His face to shine upon us, it is that His way may be known on all the earth. His salvation to all peoples. And whatever He's given to us is meant to overflow, not just to us four, no more shut the door, not just to me and mine, it is meant to overflow to the neighbors. And as it overflows to the neighbors, to the nation, And as it overflows to the nation, it overflows to the nations. How do you respond to this, Jesus? You turn and touch Him by faith, and you bring others to do the same. Now maybe you're here this morning, and this is the first time you've darkened the door of a church. Or maybe you've been here for a long time, and you're hearing about this Jesus, And you're wondering what to do. My mind goes to a story that our boys read as their mother educated them in their younger days. It was the story of a tall sail ship. And this tall sailing ship was off the coast of South America. And it came, it lost its wind and came to a rest in the ocean with the sun blazing down upon it. And as the sun blazed down upon it for Days and for days, the sailors went through their fresh water supply that they had brought with them. And finally, despairing of life, they were lying on the deck trying to catch a wind, just trying to get the shade from the sails, thinking that they're all going to perish out here on the ocean, not far from the coast. And then off on the horizon, they saw the mast of another tall sailing ship. And through semaphore, they signaled, send fresh water or we die. The ship signaled back, put down your buckets where you are. Thinking they had not communicated, they sent another signal. Send fresh water or we die. Put down your buckets where you are. Again, they sent the signal. No, send fresh water or we die. And a third time came back the the repeat signal. Put down your buckets where you are. And so finally, in desperation, one of the sailors took a bucket threw it over into the ocean, thinking he was going to drink salt water to his death, only to taste wonderful, fresh water. They had for days been sitting off the, off the mouth of the Amazon River, 
And everything they needed for life was flowing right underneath their ship. And so often we can be like that as those who come to church Sunday after Sunday. You've been hearing about Christ. You've been hearing about Christ for years. Maybe this is the first time and you're saying, I need something else. No, all you need to do is put down your buckets into what you're hearing. By faith, put down your bucket into Christ. Turn from your sin. Touch Him. And bring others to do the same. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your steadfast love and your faithfulness you have gathered this assembly this morning. And we are those whom you have gathered from all over and all kinds of backgrounds. And so we thank you for the testimony that this is to the finished work of the Lord Jesus. But we also come confessing that while we see Christ more clearly, we don't see him as we could. And so we pray that you would increasingly enable us to repent of our sin and to believe more deeply, more certainly in Jesus. And then, Lord, we pray that through the Holy Spirit whom you have poured out upon your church, you would give to these, your people, a renewed heart, the heart of Christ, to reach the crowds. Those who are in family who don't know Jesus, those who are colleagues who don't know Jesus, neighbors who don't know Jesus. Lord, would you for your glory in the face of Jesus grant us the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.